This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. You know, just this morning I woke up and got an email that said, Thank you for your donation. Your dollar today was one of at least 7,406 that will be donated to Shalva. Now, Shalva, first of all, is an amazing organization. We've had the founder, Kalman Samuels, on this podcast quite a while ago. An amazing person, an amazing institution. But the email I got was from dailygiving.org. And why is that? Because I clicked on their link, dailygiving.org, and signed up to give $1 a day together with thousands and thousands of other people. It sounds like 7,405 or six other people. And in so doing, I'm able to give to a great organization every single day with many, many other people. And the power of the unity, the feeling that I can wake up, especially during these 10 days of repentance, during the period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur when I'm recording this, is such a wonderful, uplifting feeling every single morning. And so I really encourage you, please take a look at dailygiving.org, pause the podcast even, go sign up or multitask, do it while you're listening, dailygiving.org. Meanwhile, what a conversation I had with Mike Levin, and I speak about dailygiving.org, philanthropy. Mike Levin is an incredible Jewish philanthropist who both has done his own amazing work in that arena and also has been close to some of the greatest Jewish philanthropists of the 20th, 21st centuries. Bernie Marcus from the Home Depot, Sheldon Adelson, and others. He is in his own right a legend of the hospitality industry, working in the Sands Corporation and helping really build up Las Vegas as we know it today, and has done so much and recently launched the Jewish Futures Pledge, which is a lovely individual pledge aimed at helping young Jews and Jews of all ages really commit themselves to the Jewish future in various different ways. And I've been working with him in my other capacity as a Jewish outreach education professional. And I got to meet Mike live in Florida. Really just an exceptional person. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe, follow wherever you may be listening. If you're on Apple, they now have a little plus sign in the upper right-hand corner. Click on that little plus sign to make sure you get all the episodes into your inbox. And please let your friends and family know to do so as well. Comments and questions to know at gmail.com. And now to my conversation with hospitality guru, philanthropist, and visionary, Mike Levin. We are here with Mike Levin, a longtime hospitality executive, a philanthropist, also a close confidant of many other leading philanthropists in the Jewish world, and the initiator, founder, and promoter of the Jewish Futures Pledge, all of which we'll hear about in our conversation. But first of all, good morning, Mike. How are you? Good morning, Rabbi. I'm fine. I'm a little tired after my trip to New York. It's the first trip to New York I've had since February of 2020. And uh, I used to do this all the time, but getting up at four in the morning uh, yesterday to come into the city and uh, not sleeping very well last night. So I'm a little tired this morning. So if you hear it in my voice, you'll have to correct it with your audio skills. <laughs> <laughs> there you, go. you sound great. No detectable uh, fatigue there. So 
Uh, let's take it from the top. Mike, you know, you've lived a very, very uh, full and rich life. And um, I heard quite a bit about some of your more recent exploits uh, when we met in Florida a couple of weeks ago. But uh, where did it all begin? Where were you raised and uh, what, what was your childhood like? I grew up in Boston in uh, the Mattapan section, which was part of the uh, Roxbury, Dorchester Mattapan section with 86,000 other Jews, about six synagogues, four kosher butchers and whatever. It was like a shtetl here in the United States. It lasted till 1968 from the late 1800s, late, late 19th century. And then it, it disappeared as Jews moved out around the city. I grew up in, a, uh, in an apartment, a three-story apartment building uh, with my grandparents, my maternal grandparents. Was, uh, my grandfather was named Frank Goldberg. My grandmother was Ida. And my mother and father and myself, I'm an only child. And some cousins or relatives who came and stayed in the sunroom when they didn't have a place to stay or some relative who needed some help. The bottom floor of three stories we lived in the, under the name Goldberg. The middle story was Silverberg and the upstairs was Greenberg. <laughs> so we had three mountains. Greenberg was the landlord. So he had the biggest thing. It was a walk up. It's still there, the building. I pulled it up on Google and it's been redone outside and uh, had a big sale sign on it when I looked at it a couple of years ago. And uh, I grew up and I went to uh, Hebrew school and uh, my grandfather was the vice president of a little modern Orthodox uh, show called uh, Beth Israel. I went to the Beth Hill Old Temple, which was conservative with my parents. But I used to carry my grandmother's books on the high holidays. It was everybody walked at that time to the show, of course. And I used to carry her, her cedar rim to the, uh, to the book, to the, uh, the little show. My father fought in World War II. He was in the Battle of the Bulge in the infantry. He went in when he was 35 years old. And of course, the efficient government put him right on the front lines. Uh, he managed to survive, which was amazing. But I grew up, my grandfather was with me for two and a half years as my father. Uh, I learned much from him in that environment. Uh, you know, we grew up, we had no, ref no refrigerator. We had an ice box outside. People delivered ice to us. Uh, we uh, didn't have a washing machine or a dryer and didn't have a television until 1948. I used to, uh, in, in 1949, I guess, 48, I used to walk across the street to the gas station to watch Milton Berle on a Tuesday night. And the playgrounds were all around. And uh, my father used to play baseball with me uh, in, in, in a little piece of land we had next door to the building, to the apartment. I went to high school, grammar school, high school in Boston, college in greater Boston, graduate school, Boston University. By that time, we'd moved to Brookline, along with all the Jews had moved out by 1968. We moved out in, after I left high school in 1955. It was a very, uh, on the high holidays, uh, the whole shtetl was closed. You know, people walked around, the stores were closed. It was a very, a very I guess, uh, Eastern European environment. And, uh, and that's what I grew up in. Uh, uh, it was all about family and, and meeting other relatives who had moved out, going to their houses. My parents never owned a house. My mother had never, never been on an airplane. Father was a traveling salesman. My mother was a secretary. She didn't work, of course, after I was born. And uh, I had two mothers and two fathers. And what could be luckier than that? Did you have a sense early on about what you wanted to do, you know, with your life was... Was business something interesting to you? I imagine, you know, people from your generation were really all about, you know, that hard scrabble work ethic and sort of elevating yourself, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and, 
and all that sort of thing. Well, in the eight, in the eighth grade and junior, in the eighth grade and junior high school, they had a career. You had to do a career paper. I mean, I know. You think about that today. You think that eighth grade middle school kids are getting are being asked to, to write something about their career. My junior high school was filled. There was ninety percent Jewish in the junior high school. There was probably ninety five percent Jewish. You know, the interesting thing about grammar school was in the first grade we had one Gentile in the class. And uh, and he failed huh. and stayed back. And since I knew no Gentiles at that time, I said to my mother, I said, can Gentiles get promoted in school? <laughs> I said, that's, that's the way it was. It was so it was so incredibly Jewish. But at any rate, in junior high school, I read a book written by Samuel Leibowitz, Judge Leibowitz, a Jewish man who uh, was the was a judge at the Scottsboro Boys trial in Alabama. A black uh, kids who were accused of. Uh, allegedly of uh, raping a, a white, white girl. And uh, it really impressed me what he did. And then I decided I want to be a lawyer. And so uh, I told my parents I wanted to be a lawyer. Only one member of my mother's family had been to college and no member of my father's family was a college graduate. So when I went to Tufts after high school, I went to a magnet high school, a great high school, Boston Latin School, which is still a great high school, public, of course. I went to Tufts and I studied political science and I minored in theater arts, which was a, and, and, and I guess I minored in athletics at the same time, which was a very odd experience that anybody who was an athlete was involved with the theater. What did you play? Uh, I played everything. I was, uh, I made the fraternity all-star team in football and basketball, and I played varsity lacrosse for Tufts, and, uh, but I, I did everything. I also acted and directed for the theater, wrote for the newspaper. Uh, I was a sports editor for the newspaper, and I also did the public address systems at the home football games. It also did the Tufts radio station away football games, uh, play-by-play broadcast. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember who who was the best player on the Tufts football team? Well, we had had a guy named George Kirker who became a pro tackle for Tufts football team. Uh, Normie Wright and David Wells were the two backs. They were the best backs in the league that we played in, which was a small conference. Uh, basketball team wasn't very good. I played freshman basketball. Then I decided to play fraternity basketball. Uh, and I was president of API, which they called master, which is kind of a terrible name, but, uh, I was master of API and, uh, very active on the campus. And I major, I say my major in political science, I applied to law school and I got into uh, all five law schools that I applied to, but university of Chicago offered me a scholarship, full tuition, women board scholarship. So I went there for three months and then I quit and decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. Wow. Came home, came home, went to graduate school at Boston University to get a master's in communications and public relations and uh, got engaged to my present wife, which is we got married in May of 1961. Uh, we're married 60 years, uh, May 29th, this just past May 29th. And uh, she was a, at Boston University. She became a Spanish high school teacher. And I got my first job four months before, uh, about five months before we were getting married after working part-time as an assistant social worker during my graduate school year. And uh, I didn't want to be a social worker, but I had been a camp counselor at a Jewish camp and an athletic director and assistant head counselor. I love the camping business. I had no money. I'd like to buy my own camp. I've tried all these years to do it, but I never had enough money to do it. When I had enough money, I was too old. <laughs> so, 
And I, I uh, basically uh, started out in the hospitality business in uh, February 1st of 1961 at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York, which is now closed, in a sales promotion manager job, which lasted about a month. And they eliminated the job and put me in the sales department. And that was the beginning of my hotel career. And I stayed in that business until I retired in December of, uh, well, finally retired in December of 14, of 2014. So I was in the business a long, long time. So why did you um, drop out of law school? What, how did you know so quickly that it wasn't for you? Well, I didn't. I, at Boston Land School and in college, at Boston Land School, they taught you how to study. That was the major. You know, we had three hours of homework a day, every day in, in high school. I was a high school basketball player in a city championship team also. But hey, I, I learned how to study. I went to college. And I applied those principles in college while everybody else was out playing and drinking. I was I was playing and studying. And I knew I went to bed early and other people at the finals were staying up all night. But I did my work by 10 o'clock and I, I knew how to do it. I took the right courses and I went to law school. I, I was, had good good grades and, and uh, I put the same principles in when I got to law school in Chicago and studied. There were five courses in the first trimester and four courses I did very well. And in the fifth course, I got a 40. And uh, I had never gotten a 40 on anything in my entire life, except maybe conduct when I was in Hebrew school. And, uh, <laughs> and the, uh, <laughs> I'm looking back at it now. And the, the mark I got was in contracts, which is not a really esoteric uh, thing. And I didn't have any idea why. So the professor, a guy named Malcolm Sharp, who coincidentally was one of the defenders of the Rosenberg trial, the famous Rosenberg trial. Sure. Uh, and wrote the book, wrote the contracts book. We were using his book. And he uh, he said, if anybody had a question on the grade, they could come and see him and talk to him, which is common stuff today. But in those days, you didn't talk to people in authority about what questions you had. No, I never talked to a teacher about a mark in any school. I never talked to anybody about it. You know, any authority. I never talked to a policeman. I never talked to any authority. So I decided to go see him. So I went to see him and I said, he said to me, why are you here? And I said, well, I, I got a 40 in exam. I've never gotten a 40. He said, well, Mr. Levin, I've read your paper and you don't understand it at all. And you'll never understand. It. Wow. So I got very upset and I left and I, I went, I sold my books at the bookstore and I got into my car. Tried, tried to get into my car. The dean called me because my roommate called the dean to tell him I was leaving. And uh, so I went to see the dean. I told the dean the story. The dean begged me to stay. He said, everything will be okay. Don't worry. Just finish the first year. But I was too stubborn and uh, too insulted. And I, uh, I got into my little 1959 Volkswagen and I drove 19 hours home. I wrote a letter to my parents and stuck it in the mailbox. I figured they'd get it before I got there saying I was leaving. And uh, I drove 19 hours. I remember I had to sing to myself to stay up because it was a long ride from Chicago at that time. And I got home and I drove up. And sure enough, my father was at the door. I had no, no idea what to expect. And my father said, welcome home. So I, uh, that's the kind of family we were. And after that, my mother said to me, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I think I'll go to graduate school at BU which was right down the street from where we live. And I got into the master's program and I got a part-time job to pay for it at this uh, Morgan Memorial Home for Boys. I had a great experience there for the year that I did it. 
they offered me to stay on and uh, pay for my master's in social work. And I said, no, I was getting married. I couldn't work for $1.50 an hour. So that's the story of how I left law school. Many, many, many years later, when I was on the Las Vegas Sands board in 2014, so that's how many years from 1959 to 2014? That's a long time. 55 years. Yeah. That's right. And a new board member came on. His name was David Levy. And uh, he was sitting next to me at a board meeting. He was, he was a law professor at Duke. And uh, I was still on the board at Las Vegas Sands at the time. So I said, David, David Levy, I said, are you related to Ed Levy, who was the former attorney general of the United States and dean of the University of Chicago Law School? Yeah, he was my father. I said, oh, my God. I said, he's the last person I saw when I left University of Chicago Law School. So I told him the story. And he said to me, oh, I can understand that. I knew who Malcolm Sharp was. He did that to everybody. So, I mean, isn't that, that's an amazing story. And, uh, and uh, anyway. What's, what's amazing about it to me is that you see the power of one comment that a person could make. It could change your, somebody's entire life, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You can change a person's life dramatically with one thing. And when you're in a position of authority, it taught me also that, the way you treat people is so important in terms of their livelihood as a boss, for example, or, or, as, or as a peer. Anything you can do can absolutely impact someone, whether it's an adult or a child. I think it was a great learning experience. I do in some ways, actually, Rabbi, I do, I do regret that I didn't finish the first year. I think if I said, I, you know, and I think in my book that I wrote, I recovered from a lot of adversity along the way. But and that, I should have recovered from that adversity, although. I have no regrets about not being a lawyer, but it was, imagine going to see, see your father and mother in those days. And uh, my, my in-laws, my father-in-law, uh, we were engaged at the time, said to my wife, well, he's not going to law school. What's he going to do? You know, my parents never, never reacted that way because, you know, it was kind of a shanda, so to speak, that uh, you walk out of a, on, a, on a full scholarship course. So, so I, I think about it a lot. And if I had it to do over again, I think I probably would have finished the first year and said, listen, I'll do better in Mr. Sharp's class and I'll show him that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But I didn't. I was young and perhaps immature, but it was a good lesson. So where did you go from there? You went into, uh, you started working in hospitality. Why hospitality? What did that look like early on? Well, I tried to get a job in advertising and public relations because I had written for a newspaper and I liked the advertising environment from what I'd seen and heard about. And I sent out a hundred resumes to advertising agencies and whatever, because they had two training programs, one for media buying and one for management training. And I was told the only programs I could get into was media buying, not management training, because they didn't put Jews in there. This was 1960, the end of 1960. That was my first experience like that. So I didn't want to be in media buying. I didn't see myself as a mathematician or anything like that. I wanted to be in management. And I learned that from my camping experience and also from my AAPI experience. I liked management. And even in my theater experience, when I was a director, I liked managing other people, leading other people. So I was getting married in May of 61, and I'm getting out in January of 61. I needed the job, and I couldn't get one in, in, in PR either because they wanted somebody that wrote had written for a newspaper. I wrote for Tufts weekly, but that was not a good enough. So I couldn't get in. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I went to Boston University's placement office and they had a job as a sales, a sales promotion manager at the Hotel Roosevelt, New York. And uh, 
it was uh, $495 a month and lunch. And, uh, and I didn't know anything about hotels. I'd only stayed in one in my life. We were motel people. So I, I decided to take it because Andrew was from New Jersey and, you know, so it was easy. Her family was there. And uh, I took the job. And then that job lasted a month. And then they threw me into the sales department, which I didn't want to do because my father was a traveling salesman. And I had two degrees and all that other stuff. I said, gee whiz, I ought to be doing something better than that. But it was the greatest experience I ever had because I never lost my sales capability. And I think part of my, if anything has influenced my success, it's the ability to not only sell myself, but the ability to, to teach others how to sell and help them sell and manage that way. And so uh, it was a great experience. I stayed in sales for a number of years and then went into operations because I wanted to make the decisions to help the sales salesman do his thing. So that's what happened. So those are the early days. Where were you working? All in New York or New Jersey or? Well, I started in New York City. I stayed in New York City till 63. In 63, I got a job for Sinesta running, uh, selling all their hotels around the country and outside the country. In 1963, I got promoted into that. And then in 65, I moved back to Boston to be director. I wanted to go into operations. They put me into director of sales and catering at a hotel in Boston. And shortly thereafter, they sold the hotel and they moved me back to 64. I went to Boston at the end of 64. And I was managing salespeople, which is what I really wanted to do. And then they sent me back to New York again to be at the Plaza Hotel, the famous Plaza Hotel as director of sales and marketing. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I got transferred to Nassau and the Bahamas because I also wanted to get back into operations and I became resident manager of a hotel in, in Nassau. And I did that with my wife and two young children, one who was going to be was born in 66 and the other was born in 68. So I did, uh, I had two little kids in the Bahamas I did that for a couple of years. And then we went back to uh, New Jersey. You don't want to hear all the details of everything else. Uh, and that was the career track I was on and eventually got to a point a number of years later where I stayed in operations and used my sales and marketing skills and then learned all the other skills I had to learn to manage the other departments. And eventually became president of a company that was based in Chicago. I got the, the job for a few months and then the owners decided to sell the company off the asset by asset. So I, I got a job in 1985 as president of Days In in Atlanta. And that was we were in Chicago at that time. And that was the first big presidency that I had in 1985. All throughout this time, what was your relationship to the Jewish community? Were you starting to become active in different Jewish causes already? Were you maintaining your affiliation with you know, AEPI and things like that? What, what was that connection like during this phase? Well, that's an interesting question because the answer to that was that I didn't really have any resources. I belonged to a synagogue or temple all through my marriage, all through my children's situation, except when I was in the Bahamas. We couldn't find one. But, uh, and my kids were, you know, by mitzvah and things like that. And all that, but I was never solicited by the Federation. I was never brought into any community. I didn't do anything from the time I was actually graduated college till 1985 when I became president of Days Inns. And then three months after I was there in Atlanta, the lay head of the Federation called me. 
I didn't know who he was, actually. My secretary came in one day and said, there's a man by the name of Stephen Seelig III on the phone, would like to come and see you. And I said, well, no one's ever seen me with a number after their name. I don't, who is he? Well, apparently he's involved with the Federation. And uh, until I got that job at 48 years old, so there was a gap in my Jewish world from the time I left summer camp, basically, other than being a member of a temple, there was nothing else I did Jewishly at all until, until that. And Steve Seelig solicited me. He said, you got to give me a gift of $5,000. I said, oh, my God, that's enormous. He said, no, in two years, you'll make it fifteen. And uh, uh, so I began. They put me in a young leadership group. And from uh, the only thing I'd done Jewishly was by accident, because in 1971, I went to Israel on a consulting mission for semester in a hotel in Elat. But that was as close as it ever got. So from that time on, from the days in time on, I've been involved very much in the Jewish community. And of course, not even as much as I've been involved now since I got, I, I eventually got to be a trustee of the Marcus Foundation and then went to Vegas and worked with Sheldon Adelson and did all that kind of stuff. So, so from, I'd say from uh, 1986 to now, which is 30 years or so, 35 years, 35 years, I've been involved Jewishly one or another situation, either with my body or with with my checks. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So when did you start migrating over to Vegas, which is, of course, the hospitality capital maybe of the world, and you you had uh, engagement with some, you know, really titans of that industry. You mentioned Sheldon Adelson, who recently passed away. Um, At what point did did you get to that? Did you move there? Well, I had retired. I had retired from the business. And was uh, went to work for Bernie Marcus uh, as head of his foundation. And Bernie Marcus, so people understand, that one of the co- the co-founder of Home Depot, and yeah, and he's a big philanthropist and a big Jewish philanthropist and whatever. And uh, and these were in the years where politics was not a big deal, you know, like it is now. I mean, they, they, so they spent their money Jewishly a lot and made changes and things like that. So I ran his foundation for a couple of years after I sold a company, a hospitality company that I had started and uh, sort of retired. And I went for, to work with Bernie Rennie's foundation. He was building an aquarium at the time. And I helped, I helped, I was involved in that building, not from the fish side, but from the administrative side and all that, because it was sort of a hotel for fish, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, uh, after the thing opened, after the first year, they were having some problems with the management and whatever. And he said to me, why don't you go in and consult? So I went in and consulted with the management, tried to figure out what was going on. And the guy left. The guy was the CEO left. So Bernie said, you stay there. So I stayed there. I was running the aquarium for a couple of years. And I was on this, I was on Sheldon's board at the time, Las Vegas Saints. And so I was involved from 2005, I think. And that's a long story how I got there. But it was through some friends of his, and I had met him a couple of times, and he wanted a hotel person to be because he was going public, and he wanted to have, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's how I ended up being on his board. And then in 2008, when the crisis hit, got Las Vegas Sands had lots of problems, and uh, Sheldon was changing his president, and uh, he said for me to go find one. He thought I knew everybody in the business. I said, well, I don't know everybody in the business. And I was at that time 71 years old. And I said, well, let's use a search firm. He said, no, no, you just do it yourself. So I became a search firm. I found a couple of candidates. He couldn't make a deal with either one. And then in January of 09, he offered me the job. 
and I didn't want to do it. I was too comfortable doing what I was doing. But my wife said, you're bored, you should take the job. And Bernie said he'd negotiate the thing for me. And uh, because I always made lousy negotiations for myself. And so I had these two titans that I was working with. And then I went to Vegas. The company was in serious difficulty at the time. And we were very fortunate to take Sheldon's ideas and be able to execute them appropriately in Singapore and in Macau and in Vegas and in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And the stock price went from $1.36 to $83 and paying a $2 dividend by the time I was finished at the end of five years. I was supposed to go for two and ended up being at five years and nine months, actually five years and 10 months. And it was a great experience. And I learned a lot about not only that part of the business, but I learned a lot about the Jewish stuff. Sheldon got me involved in the birthright board, uh, in the planning committee to watch over his investment because he was a big investor there. And I was able at that time to earn enough to start my own small foundation and started to do things on my own accounts towards the end. And then when I retired from there, spend uh, no, my work time is, is, uh, is doing philanthropic work uh, since the end of 2014 to now. So, you know, I want to ask you about, you know, your proximity to the Sheldon Adelson and, obviously kind of a lightning rod because as you mentioned, you know, the world has become so political and so polarized. And so, you know, there, there are people that are very, that have a difficult time, you know, seeing past that and, and looking at the philanthropic work. But that being said, I mean, Sheldon Adelson was a, a massive uh, philanthropist and just obviously just passed away very recently. What did you learn kind of about Jewish philanthropy and about the Jewish world being in that orbit? And, um, you know, and, and how did you kind of develop as a, as a philanthropist yourself, being around someone of such uh, magnanimity? Well, I think first I first learned about Jewish philanthropy, really, from Bernie Marcus, who is, he looks at himself as an entrepreneurial philanthropist, and he measures the results and measures that. So that was a very good learning experience to look at the people that are running organizations, look what they're doing, and know the people that you can depend upon to use your, use your money and get results. Of course, if you're a small philanthropist, you don't have the size. You're not giving million-dollar donations. Your, your donations are significantly smaller, but you can choose programs. You can help start situations. You can make donations that eventually turn into bigger ones, and then the, the big philanthropist could take over from there. You know, So you become very entrepreneurial from that standpoint. From Sheldon's philanthropy, and both of these people were major donors to Israel in one way or another. But Sheldon's philanthropy was basically two sources, basically medical research, which he did with his wife, a spouse, and, and stuff that he was interested in. His sister died of ovarian cancer, so he was interested in ovarian cancer, stuff like that. But Sheldon, Sheldon basically was as, as much an Israel supporter as anybody, probably as any Jew in the world. I mean, Israel came first, and, and but he was... Uh, but he wanted it done to be his way. In other words, you know, it's when you're giving $40 million to Birthright, you know, if, if he doesn't like the management, he's going to talk about the management. He's going to make change, try to make change. I mean, he's using the leverage of his money. Uh, I've never seen Bernie do that. Bernie just stops paying uh, or just won't, won't do it again, you know, whatever. But Bernie, Bernie would measure results through his organization. Sheldon wouldn't measure results, but he, he, he did it from a feeling standpoint, how we felt about it. 
he just he, he, he's an intuitive intuitive guy and basically but and used his intuition which was spectacular in the gaming business for what he did uh but at the end of the day you still have to execute so and for both i mean you have to execute so so i i tend to bet on the horse you know what they do the person in charge if i don't like the person running the business I'm not going to make a donation. If I like the person running the business, even if it's a $5,000 donation, well, you do some things at $2,500 you don't care about, or $1,000, $1,800, you know, I mean, you say, okay, I want to participate with this. So what, I, so what they were doing, both of them were trying to change things, you know, make change because they, because they could afford to. What I do is I try to start things and grow things and then do, and, and other grants are called support grants. You know, you're not, you're not going to change anything, but you're going to support something. If I want to change something, I don't have enough funds to do that. But if I want to start something, I sometimes have enough funds to start something or support. So that's, so it's a little different kind of philanthropy. And uh, I don't use philanthropy for political purposes. You know, as I don't support, well, it's, it's not tax deductible from a foundation standpoint. Anyway, it's just to support candidates. I have to do whatever I do politically myself. I don't do much anyway. But I learned from both of them. And I made some mistakes. But, you know, I, I, made, I made some gifts to, to start off some things. One of them was an interesting organization that just started. I, I loved the founder. I thought was absolutely terrific. And then all of a sudden, three years later, I supported the founder left. And I decided to stop my support. And, uh, you know, so I've had things like that because it was a very entrepreneurial thing that this guy did. I I love the idea. And all of a sudden things changed. And and so I stopped. What's interesting is that, you know, in addition to your own gifts, though, you've become kind of a, uh, a right hand to some of these major philanthropists, which allows you to sort of help steer and, and have an impact, you know, outsized impact beyond your own gifts. Um, so what's that been like? Well, that's, that's, I, I was a right-hand guy to a number of people and I was a right-hand guy for Sheldon, a right-hand guy for Bernie, a right-hand guy for Henry Silverman when I was running his company, a right-hand guy for Al Milner when he was running his company and for Brian Lincoln at Holiday Inn when he was running his company. I was a number two guy a lot and I was number one guy in a couple of places, but, uh, those major people, I was their right-hand person. The key to being the right-hand person is to know it's not your agenda, it's their agenda. And if you don't like their agenda, you shouldn't be there. So you have to execute for them. But, you know, you know, it's very difficult to manage for or to be the executor of their philosophies and their into it's things if you disagree with them. I mean, you can't, you know, and I think, I think I've often asked the question, why do people like that who are basically billionaires, what do they want? From, what, do they, what do they like me? What do they like about me? And I think I've interpreted that to say I was never working on my agenda. I was working on theirs. And it's good advice for people, actually. You have to be able to understand the agenda. And if the agenda is not what you like, you shouldn't be there. Did you ever find yourself sharply disagreeing and, and trying to redirect? Oh, oh no. Sure. Sure. There are disagreements that take place in the execution of their agenda. And if you, if you don't agree, if you don't agree with it, Sometimes you can convince them, sometimes you can't, but it has to be their agenda. It's not your agenda. Your job, really, if you see somebody going the wrong way, and say, gee whiz, I, you know, that's going to hurt this. You have to be able to explain yourself. And you say, but after all, if they want to do it, they want to do it. I'll give you an example. 
Bernie Marcus has supported the IDI in Israel for years and years and years. And every year, the cost of supporting it kept going up and the results didn't change. What's the IDI? Uh, the, the Israel Democracy Institute. And I said to Bernie one day, I said, Bernie, and we're starting at four or five million dollars and it's going up to six or seven every day because the argument is the shekel's changing. I said, I don't think that's effective. I said, I think you should limit. I said, you should make a number and say this is going to be the number. So he agreed to it. So he agreed. He agreed to the number. And, and for many, many years, it hasn't gone up. So it basically, uh, they have to learn to raise their money elsewhere. So sometimes you get a situation like that where you can convince them. And I, same thing happened with, with the aquarium. It's when I started to run the aquarium, if it were a major project, I'd go to Bernie because after all, he was the major funder. But, you know, he, when I when I went back to it after after Vegas, they were building an exhibit. Like no one ever said who wanted it, but I but people hated it. And I, I went to Bernie and said, I'm not going to do this exhibit. I'm going to change it to something else. And he agreed. So, you know, I think when you build a relationship with someone, who's above you in the line, you do have you do have the responsibility to disagree, but you ought to have the rationale for the disagreement. And sometimes they'll listen to you and sometimes they won't. And sometimes they'll disagree with them and you have to execute accordingly. Requires some humility, it sounds like. I mean, you have that in your own organization, you know, the people that you work for. I mean, you know, the one thing that you have to take away is that no one's right with everything. There is nobody that's right all the time. Even though there are some people who think they are right all the time, they're not right all the time. And if you, but if you build a relationship and they tr- a trust with the people above you, then uh, you can have that discussion, but you may not always win. If somebody, example, I can give you an example of Bernie or an example of Sheldon, an example of they want to fire somebody and you don't want to fire that person. You can try to talk them out of it and the reasons why, and you may lose. But at the end, uh, if you lose, you lose. And I say, if you lose all the time, you shouldn't be there. But you do have the responsibility to elevate a concern about a decision that you may disagree with. But you also have to be big enough to be able to accept that there's somebody that may know something better than you. I'm very curious. I want to I want to get into the Jewish Futures Pledge, but just before that, you know, you you spent time really in the sort of the bowels of the Vegas hospitality industry, which is you know kind of its own world of glitz and really kind of a bubble of activity in, in the country. What was that experience like? A nice Jewish boy from Boston kind of being in the, you know, right in the, in the thick of things in the Vegas gaming world. Well, I think that, I mean, Vegas is a very exciting place and it's, it's, it's easy because there's so much money moving around that it's very easy for you to let it get in the way of good decisions. So for example, you know, you're making an entertainment decision. And I remember one time we were making a decision to have Faith Hill, and Tim McGraw as entertainers. And I happen to like those entertainers and we lost a lot of money by putting them in. And so, you know, you're talking about lots of dollars going down the drain. And they were very nice people, actually. I met them a couple of times. It's really kind of nice, but it cost us a lot of money. So you got to be careful in terms of there's so much capital there compared to the other parts of the hotel business that not only from entertainment, but building buildings, building ballrooms, doing those kinds of things. And you have to ensure the fact that you can operate against it. And uh, volumes are very important in Vegas. Activity is very important in Vegas. And you got to manage it. And, and the amount of, you know, I, we were dealing in Vegas with 6,600 employees and 7,000 7, hotel rooms in the complex between the Venetian and Palazzo. 
Francisco City. So you have to have the right governance and you have to have the right people running it day to day and you have to manage it. And, you know, it, it's, it's very complex. And I had people doing that. I mean, you know, you didn't get in Vegas. You're kind of far from the playing field. But I made it my business to meet the people and stay with the people and understand it and whatever. And the other thing about Vegas is that people in Vegas get paid a lot of money much more money than people in other, other parts of the hospitality industry because there's so much money they get paid a lot. So it was kind of like coaching an NBA team versus coaching a college team. And so the players are different. They're more spoiled. They're wealthier. And just like the, base, the basketball players. And so consequently, why some people in foot, professional football can't go from coaching in college to coaching in the pros because it's a different level of people that a different experience, a different financial scenario, and they're much more independent. And so you have to change your management style. You're, you're not much, you're teaching, but you're teaching in a different way. And it's the same thing, you know, but at the end of the day, you don't work any harder than you work in any other jobs. I used to say in Vegas when I was there, how come they pay me so much money? I'm doing exactly the same thing I was doing somewhere else. But just the nature of it is that people pay a lot more money when you're in that part of the business. Fascinating. Did you ever feel it was these things came in conflict at all with Jewish values and you know dealing with you know there's there's the uh, reputation of Vegas as kind of the old seedier side of things. Was that something you ever uh, rubbed up against? I didn't because Sheldon's basic principles was no prostitution. He didn't allow it. I checked with security. The you know the thing you look down on with the investigation, whatever. We used to throw them out and the stuff in that. He had a big moral consequence of following the rules, playing a game, you know, not not violating the thing from an entertainment standpoint and things like that. So there was no unethical behavior in his mind. He had lots of principles that way. Some of the casinos do violate certain principles like that, particularly in China and other places where it's a little bit easier. I wasn't uncomfortable about it from a moral standpoint. I think children's orders were to follow the rules and not violate. I felt a little uncomfortable with some of the gaming stuff, which involved much high limit play where people are losing lots of money. But it nevertheless was perfectly legal and, and there's nothing immoral if a person wants to play a million dollars a hand versus somebody who wants to play $5 a hand. But, uh, you know, I, I, uh, but it was never really my day-to-day -day work. My day-to-day -day work was above that particular situation. But as long as we followed the gaming regulations and followed the rules in every, every place, I didn't feel there was any moral, there was no moral compromise. I had my own feelings about gaming. I think there's a lot of money they talk about responsible gaming, trying to teach people to be responsible, but it's a lot of baloney in my mind. I mean, it doesn't mean anything because some people will play who can't afford it. Some people will play who can't afford it. And some people will play a long, long time and some people won't. Uh, it's an individual choice that people make. And if they want to play and lose, it's up to them. I met with a guy who lost $9 million in blackjack over a period of years one day and and uh i didn't deal with many of the customers but he was a customer and i nice guy and i said how can you lose nine million dollars you know i mean and he said he says I, I don't need the money to be honest with you i'm very charitable i give a lot of money away and to me nine million dollars i just have a good time and i don't mind it i don't mind it so you know Okay, and, well, the money goes to good use, actually. I mean, it goes into the profit or it goes to this and we pay people, we hire people. And it didn't bother them. But I, feel, I feel, often felt that people who couldn't afford it would come in and lose $1,000 or $5,000 and say, 
I think you get sort of blase about, you know, but I, I, I think still it's an individual thing. I, I, you know, most of the people who go to Vegas or any other casino, most of them go for fun. And but you do have a few who overplay and lose. And I kind of felt badly for them. So tell me about the Jewish Futures Pledge, um, this wonderful initiative that I believe you founded to inspire Jewish philanthropy from high net worth individuals in terms of their bequests and, and, and things of that nature. Seems like it's patterned maybe after the Warren Buffett initiative in the uh, in the broader world. Uh, maybe that's correct. Maybe it's not. But tell me about how that initiated. Well, it started in a way because I had a meeting with my wife when I developed three donor advice funds for each one of my children. And my wife asked me the question, uh, how do you know they're going to spend the money Jewish? And I, I want to make it clear to the listener that the Jewish Future Pledge or the Jewish Youth Pledge, which we now have also, has nothing to do about high net worth individuals. It has to do with all Jewish individuals. It's a moral commitment to continue to support the generosity and philanthropy of the Jewish world. If, in fact, someone is going to leave money for charitable purposes in their will, or even a small amount of money for charitable purposes, that a percentage of that money, a 50% of that money, should be spent Jewishly. But more important than even that is that they sign the moral pledge to support the Jewish people after they're gone, and the state of Israel after they're gone, through their children. And the idea was that if you sign the Jewish Future Pledge, for example, there's no reason you can't sign it, because if you have children, that you would talk to your children. You're young, so you probably don't have children old enough, but you can start them with a little Sadaka box where they're putting money in because it's part of being Jewish. And so I think that now we're, we're originally we started with the high net worth, but now, now we've decided to work much harder on all Jews because we, we want to make sure that the history of giving, the history of sharing with others, going back to Maimonides and before that, is that, that anybody, anybody who's either leaving something or whatever to generate the conversation with their children at Rosh Hashanah or at Passover or at Hanukkah, at the Seder table, Pesach, and things like that, is to talk about this and say to your children, I've signed this Jewish Future Pledge, and I'm going to leave something in my will that's going to be charitable, and you have to be 50% Jewish. And if it's $100, it's fine with me. I don't care. So it's really, we want the universal, the universe of Jewish people to know that to support the organizations like your own, that there has to be people who pass this on to their children. That it's their responsibility to support it when they get anything from their parents. If they get nothing from their parents, then maybe they'll have something that they'll have. So you start teaching that earlier. That's what I was taught in Mattapan, Massachusetts. Every Friday afternoon, a man with a beard would knock on the back door of the apartment. He had a big sack over his back. And he'd hand my grandmother a new Jewish National Fund blue box. And he'd take the one that I put my pennies and nickels in from the week before. And so what we want to do is we want to have a million people sign this. And there's not a million high net worth individuals. We'll get them too. But at the end of the day, we want everybody to sign it. And then for the youth, we've already got over 1,500 youth signatures which say my generation will support the Jewish people and the state of Israel and I will support. It has nothing to do with money. It has to do with the moral commitment that we all have. Because I could tell you that since 48 years old to now, 
I'm now going to be 84 in November, so we're talking about 36 years since I've been involved Jewishly. There isn't a day goes by that I don't think about my grandfather. And my grandfather, who made very little money, very little money, would borrow money to give to a family member who was in need or out of work. And that was in his obituary. I didn't even know it at the time. But I still have a copy of the obituary in 1956 when he died that was written by the family newspaper in a mimeograph machine. And it talks about uh, my grandfather in terms of his generosity, even when he didn't have it. And, uh, and I know when I think about the accolades that I get for what I do with what I have, uh, go back to him and what I learned as a kid didn't realize it until I get old enough to really understand it. And I think we owe that. We owe that so that we owe the past, but we must be concerned about the future. It's our responsibility to teach others coming after us to ensure the fact that they support. I'm not a big one with all the anti-Semitic programs that people are offering and all this kind of stuff. I think we have to talk about our future and share our future and uh, not be worried about not not teaching all of the past problems and the pogroms and all the rest of the stuff, but what we have accomplished. Noah Tisby just wrote a book about Israel. You probably know about it. The is- Israel, the uh, most misunderstood. You only have to read the last chapter when she writes what Israel has done in this world as it's with nine million people in it, what they have accomplished in health, in water, in science, and uh, with neighbors with guns at their throat since 1947, what they've done, and see how proud you can be to ensure the fact that they will survive and the Jewish community will survive with them. What inspired you to start this? Did you look around and feel like, you know, not enough people were giving Jewishly? Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's 11% of Jewish charity goes to Jewish causes. And that's okay. It's a lot of money. It's about six and a half billion dollars every year. But I'm not worried about my generation. My generation's doing it. I'm worried about what's going to happen next. What inspired me was David Horowitz, uh, who the, the Times of Israel editor, when he said that the wealth transfer that's going to go on in the next 25 years is astronomical in North America alone. And what's going to happen to the money that's passed on to the next generation? You know, I met with a gentleman the other day who's going to put $300 million into a foundation who now gives very significant amount of Jewish money. And it's going, and this $300 million is going to go into the foundation. And I was trying to convince him to please, please make sure that what you're doing today is on the bylaws of that foundation so that they will continue that. I'm not interested in more. I'm interested in just maintaining. And so, but same thing, you know, Somebody might give $100, but if that $100 doesn't take place in the next generation, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to your organization and all the other organizations that I support? There'll be no money. So, and if it cuts in half, the organizations will cut. So that's why I did it. It took me a couple of years to figure out that there's no vehicle that works. There's no vehicle that you, Life and Legacy does some of that with with this group, Ben Spoon's group. But once they put money into a building, where's the money going to come to operate it? Where's the money going to come to pay the people to take care of the building? That's got to come from the next generation. So anyway, I think that that's an important point. The important point is 
how do you teach people the responsibility that you have had and that you want them to achieve in the same thing? And that's why we put the 50% mark in because we said, look, the next generation may have different needs and different requirements in the community, different situations, but save a half for the Jews because if it were not for that half, no one else is going to take care of the Jewish people except the Jews. So that's, that's what we do. That's what we're trying to do. And we're, going to, we're in the process of, of trying to move our marketing in the direction to open it up so that the assumption is that this is for everybody. It's not just for high net worth individuals. And you mentioned this youth pledge, which is wonderful. And then when we met in Florida, um, I got to hear it. Do you have, happen to have a copy of it? I would love to read it yeah. out. Tell me where to send it. Or send me an email. Tell me where to send a, a copy. I'll show you a copy of the certificate. Yeah. Which if members of your group sign, what happens is we put your logo on it. They get a certificate from you and their names, uh, not their name, but their telephone number and their email goes into a time capsule that we're producing technology that you own, that your organization owns, that every year for three years or four years or every year thereafter, a message will come reminding them that they've signed a pledge to support the Jewish people in the state of Israel. That's wonderful. Do you happen to have a copy that you could read? Love to read it out to the uh, listening audience. Basically, what it says is, I, I want to get you the exact words. I hereby pledge to act today and throughout my lifetime to strengthen the Jewish people and the state of Israel. I make this commitment because I have a responsibility to ensure that my generation writes the next chapter of the Jewish story and remains a strong link in the chain of generations. Perfect. <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm telling you, I get tears in my eyes, honestly. I get tears in my eyes. Beautiful. You know, it's funny. I was watching the show yesterday because I was with a major donor, actually, on the Jewish Future Pledge. And I was showing him the video of my wife and my kids on JewishFuturePledge.org website. And I, I, I had tears in my eyes after a two-hour meeting, at the end of the meeting. I really I mean, anticipate when my kids say, they all, at the end, it says, we signed the Jewish Future Pledge. My kids said, they're 55, 53, and 51. And, uh, and they, they said, and they, each one says, I signed the Jewish Future Pledge. And that's, that's the Jewish future. And what do they have money and they don't have money? I mean, that's the Jewish future. Beautiful. We have NCSY is doing it. They're over 500 signatures. And they tested in Florida with uh, Todd Cohen, who runs that organization. I know him for many years. Yeah. Yeah. He's a terrific guy. In fact, I'm going to be with him tonight at the dinner and I'm flying him back to Atlanta with me tonight. And uh, they're going national now. And then everybody who goes to Israel is signing the youth pledge before they go for NCSY. I've got API signing. Uh, we've are over 650 signatures there at every initiate for API in September. For the next fraternity, we'll sign the pledge. And we're working with the leadership of BBYO. We've got 40 or 50 signatures from BBYO as well. And we'll test out now is the technology we want to get the pledge comes into us. We send the we put the logo on of the association or the organization. We send the pledges back. And then we put in, we then cat, we get the people, not, we don't even need the names. We just get the, the addresses and all that kind of stuff in so they can go into the time capsule. Eventually, we get the time capsule to go in automatically to get into the CRM. So, and you own it. Your organ, individual organization owns their own. We don't own it. We have the capsule, but you can tap the capsule 
tap the capsule to get information and all the rest of the stuff you need. So 20 years from now, somebody in your world will be able to write a note saying, just remember, remember when you were in Maryland or wherever you were, this is where you signed with you. Know, so, so we'll have eventually maybe have 100,000 of these teenage kids that are actually, you know, maybe more that are signing up so we can keep in touch with them over the years. So we want to touch everybody. And, uh, and in their case, it doesn't have to be financial. In the other case, it doesn't have to be high net worth. And that's what we want to talk about. In closing, like you recently came out with a book. Tell us about the book and, uh, you know, what precipitated it and what, what's it called and uh, what's it about? Okay. I, I, I wrote a book for my grandchildren and their children to have, which is my life story. But it's a twofold book. It has at the end of every chapter, life's lessons, lessons learned. So if it could be used from a business standpoint as well, the title is Can't Do It Yourself. And the whole theme about it is it's about the people that make you, that help to make you successful as opposed to yourself. So you hear my life story, which you heard a little bit tonight in more detail. And there are various stories that are very positive and various stories about mistakes and various stories about this and that. But at the end of the day, you can't do it yourself. And that's what the message is. It's on Amazon. And, and there is an e-book also. Uh, we were talking about doing an oral book, but I've never gotten that thing out yet. I don't think anybody's going to listen unless they're driving a long ways. And uh, it talks about my background and it ends with the, you know, talk about the philanthropy that I do now. And it has lots of stories about Las Vegas and about uh, Bernie Marcus and the other jobs and one thing or another. It talks about a very variety of anti-Semitic situations that I confronted. It talked about the work I've done in the Asian American community, where I started a whole association with 12 members of the Indian community, which is now 19,000 members. And unfortunately, in the book, there's not a lot about the aquarium, where we had a very diverse group of people. In fact, three of my senior, three of my four senior people were African Americans. So, I mean, it does really, I think, reflect me, the person, what my ethics are. And I, I think in some ways, it's very Jewish. You know, you can't do it alone, I think, on, on multiple levels. First of all, you know, in terms of your own life profile, you've been around so many other wonderful, you know, luminaries, and you've, you know, seen firsthand, you've lived firsthand how collaboration is such a vital ingredient to a successful life. But at the same time, I was going to say, you can't do it alone. From a Jewish perspective, we also think about, you know, the divine assistance that we need to be successful and how God is there with us. We really can't do it alone. Well, I think, I think, I think the, uh, you can't do it yourself is actually what the name of the book is. Uh, the, the thing about this is that in the Jewish world, there will always be a diversity of opinion. The nature, uh, you know, people say that Jews are the people of the book. I'd say, no, I never agreed with that. I said, Jews are the people of the question. And, and you know, if you read in, in your world, if you read, uh, you know, Talmudic interpretations, Torah interpretation, every you know, number of different people, the great rabbis, the great interpreters, and uh, and they had to put their case on about the people. And you had other opinions when they talked about it. I think in the Jewish world, we have to, I mean, I do a lot of work with Brad Hirschfeld, uh, Hirschfeld at uh, Cloud, who's a very dear friend of mine. I met with him for two hours today. And he helps me and he helps others in dealing with the diversity of what we have. But at the end of the day, we're still all Jews and, and we're going to be different. We're going to have arguments. We're going to have discussions. We're going to have this and that. But you know what? We're very unique people. 
very unique people. The contributions we have made for our number for our numbers are completely off the chart in terms of percentage. And I, I'd like to see before I go that we're better to each other and more tolerant of each other. And I think we need to find leaders who have those philosophies and are nonpartisan politically, or at least say you have a right to think what you think. And whatever, you know, we were talking this morning about, about this with Brad Hirschfeld, me, myself, and I said, let's talk about Peter Beinart, for example. What, he said, what would you say to Peter Beinart if you met him? And I'd say, Peter, I just want you to know I have a different opinion than yours. But I would just like to remind you that you're in a country that allows you to have that. And so I'm not going to take that away from you, although I would disagree with you. So go ahead. But I, I think that people have their right to their opinions. A lot of people have asked me in the Jewish Future Pledge, why don't you give a list of things that they should do? And I said, I'm not going to give them a list. 20 years from now, it's going to be a different list anyway. You know, so let the children make the decision as to what's right and wrong. They'll be adults. They'll be able to make their own choices. I want it to be ecumenical from the standpoint that says every Jew can have an opinion. But just teach your children to have an opinion and do it and give them the responsibility. They're capable of doing that. Mike Levin, a philanthropist, now an author, and uh, really an inspiring individual. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, I got to add one thing. Mike Levin, philanthropist, author, but I did one time score 42 points in a basketball game. <laughs> I would love to play you anytime. We can go... Uh, Next time I'm in Florida, we can play a little one-on-one. Oh, I, -on -one. I, mean, I think now you mostly play, you mostly play golf yeah. nowadays. From well, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I got a 9.7 index, so I'm doing okay at 83 <laughs> years old. So we're doing all right. But anyway. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.